You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And with me today is Director of Recruitment, Teddy Duran. And just a quick reminder, this podcast is intended to be an open forum. Any personal beliefs, views, or opinions represented in this episode are that of our guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Pacific Companies. So please have an open mind and remember that this podcast is not a news source, but rather a safe and neutral platform for candid conversations. Today on the podcast, we are honored to have Dr. Daniel Bustos, one of the top ophthalmologists in the nation. You are out of Nashville, is that correct? Correct, suburb, like Murfreesboro, Tennessee is where I actually am, but yeah, this is essentially Nashville. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for spending your precious time and and talking to us today on our podcast. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And to start the podcast, if you don't mind giving our listeners a quick educational history, where you went to school, where you did your training, kind of bring us up to date to where you are today. Okay. Uh, I was raised in Texas, in Houston, and I did uh, undergraduate at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. I did a, a master's degree in graduate school at the University of Texas in San Antonio, did medical school at the University of Texas in San Antonio, uh, and internship as well, and then did a residency at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Why did you decide to go into ophthalmology? That's a good question. Um, you know, when I first thought about going to medical school, I thought, you know, I love something right anatomical based. I loved anatomy. My master's degree is in anatomy. I taught, taught anatomy for medical students. I thought I'd love something like that. So uh, I kicked off random few specialties like radiology, uh, very anatomical based specialty. And then I went in my uh, third year rotation through radiology and wanted to pull all my toenails off one by one. Uh, I couldn't stand it. Oh, man. But really, where I, where I, where I got into ophthalmology to begin with, or even thought about it, is just with my with my research, my master's degree. We did a we did a research for uh, herpes virus uh, particles in and around the eye, and so I I dissected a bunch of cadavers and, and found the nervous tissue back there, and was able to get uh, herpes DNA out of it. Anyway, that got me started looking at the eyes, and I thought, you know, this isn't all that bad, um, and and it's, uh, I realized it's a great mix of uh, clinic and surgery and you, you get the immediate gratification of having someone go from light perception vision to 2020 the next day. It, it's just not a whole lot better feeling than that. And I get to play with cool toys. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I, I kind of pride myself. Like I, I can see medical stuff and, and not get grossed out. Well, I went into my dad's LASIK eye surgery and the doctor let me go in and watch oh, that's nice. and they took the scalpel and well, I, I watched like from a window on a screen, like, Oh sure. We're... Yeah. So, so they took the scalpel and sliced the top of the <laughs> eye and flipped it up and I woke up. So apparently nice. I passed out. <laughs> and I woke up and I had like a Snickers bar and an orange juice and I was on this couch in in their back room and nice. apparently I just remember watching it and I was like oh the eye is so different oh, to you, me I, I you're not unlike yeah. a lot of other medical professionals so many people can say I can do anything I can pull someone's colon out I can work on someone's brain I cannot touch the eyes oh yeah that's uh 
I'm sure that's probably a lot of people's feelings. I just got like the chills. It's a it's a it's a unique a unique person that wants to do this. I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you didn't choose ophthalmology, what would you have gone into? I probably would have done ENT. Yeah. Nice. That's another. Yeah, it's pretty close to the eyes. Yeah. So for ophthalmology, you probably have to be really precise, like with your hands. It feels like a very, I mean, that's a very, very specific organ to, you don't want to mess that up. No, not really. Uh, no, you don't. So yeah, it's a very detailed uh, surgery. We do microsurgery every day. And most of the time we do it on people who are awake and coughing and moving. Um, but yeah, I mean, I used to think when I was early starting my medical career that there's no way I could do something like that. So I just uh, dismissed it off the top of my head. But got talking to a few ophthalmologists, a few residents are like, no, it's not really what everyone thinks it is. You have to be, you don't have to be born to be able to do this stuff. You know, you just have to be able to see well, have control and, you know, and, and, and practice and work. So that's what I did. How long is the ophthalmology residency? So a residency ophthalmology is, is internship plus three. So four total, but three in three specifically for ophthalmology. Okay. I was actually last week, I was up in South Bend doing a, um, a profile for another client and on my layover from, we went from Chicago into Arizona. Um, but I was actually sitting next to a guy who was, interviewing for cornea fellowships so he had already oh, done, nice. he did his he did his ophthalmology residency in i think it was Bur it was birmingham alabama but okay. we just right. it's kind of think funny the things that you start talking about with people at a, over a beer at the the airport bars but he was <laughs> right. going he was but he was actively interviewing so he was going up because you said you're you went to byu right i did yeah, yeah so my actually small world my wife did uh nursing school at the university of Utah, but this this gentleman was oh, actually cool. going up to um, the University of Utah to do an interview, and he was do, he had did, done one in Chicago, did one in like Phoenix, so he was kind of all over the place. But he was it was pretty sharp. So we got to talking like kind of similar to you, like why did you go into um, ophthalmology and what made you continue? Because I had actually did a um, a search for retina as well, right? And that's a really small pool of candidates it's almost I, I talk I was talking to candidates probably within a at least the you know the contiguous states but even further out and they all knew about this practice it's just like this really there's just not a whole lot of them. <laughs> small world yeah yeah that was my next question is um is there not too many ophthalmologists out there I mean is it it's not one of the it's a pretty most it's a pretty small pool just like ENT is another uh, otolaryngology is also another one that there's not a it's a high demand for oh high high demand yeah I mean, rel relatively relatively there's not a lot um, you know the the forecast for the need for ophthalmologists uh, in the next ten years really it just keeps growing because there are, we keep living longer so more people need eye surgery we need more more ophthalmologists so there really is not going to be enough to meet the demand uh, but we're probably more than say pathologists or something but yeah there's there's not a lot of us it's a relatively small industry. Are you are you a private practice? Do you do you have a private practice or I am. Okay. I'm private practice here. Yep. Mm -hmm. You have your own 
outpatient surgery center where you do LASIK and and all that cool stuff too? We uh, actually, I operate out of a ambulatory surgery center associated with a hospital, uh, a couple of them in this area, but we are actually building our own surgery center. Nice. Store, so that'll be, that'll be convenient. Yep. Have a laser there. Laser you got some partners that you work with or are you just solo kind of sharing the space? Well, I have got partners, but they pretty much man uh, other locations throughout town. So I'm kind of here at the one, the guy in Murfreesboro. Yeah. What advice would you give um, to someone coming out of training that's thinking about going into ophthalmology? Oh, that's a good question. Advice. Um, you know, I think I think the advice is do it because you love it and because you feel like 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 you can make a difference. Especially in medicine, if you go after the money, you just, if you don't love it, you'll be miserable. You may be good at it, but you won't enjoy yourself, you know? Absolutely. I mean, if you go after the money, there's way too much uh, irritations and frustrations about medicine to, to pursue money. If you want to get rich, do something else, man. This is just not the gig. <laughs> you can do it, but but it's painful. Well, the, eye, the eyes, like you said, it's kind of a immediate gratification not like you know orthopedic surgery you got to work on them and then there's rehab and you know three months down the road they start walking again but to see someone leave your office and a day later they're they can see is probably pretty i mean it's uh, i have a i have a, a view that most people never get i mean the, the people that just come in and they're the complete sorry pathetic life because they just they can't see so they've stopped doing this they start driving they stop seeing friends they stop doing their photography they stop doing everything and some of these people get to the point where you know they're and they're coming to your office they shuffle in with a walker because they can't see anything and they've and their life has just kind of gone to a tailspin because they can't see and yeah. many of them don't even think oh maybe i should go see if i have cataracts or maybe i should go see an optometrist and see if glasses will help they just don't know so by the time they make it to my office you know, they've got these cataracts that are as white as the walls in your office uh, and they can't see the hand in front of your face. And so when you take someone like that uh, and you work on them the next day, they come back and they're 20, 20 and they see better than you do. Uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty dang amazing. That's powerful. Yeah. I, Cause that would be my, my, the misconception. I, I wear glasses. I've been wearing glasses for eight years, but the, it's the fear of like summer said, you, going in there and having your what, what you know your eyelid part of your eye lifted and is it with with anesthesia is it really that bad oh I mean, no no cataract surgery is really easy to tolerate because while most people are awake for the surgery uh you get some sedatives through your iv and um and most people end up just nodding off anyway because of that but it's not bad without with the uh, local anesthetic uh, both on and inside the eye, uh, you don't feel any pain at all. You feel some pressure, you feel a little water, uh, but no, it's not bad. And you don't see anything happening to you at all either. You just use kind of Pink Floyd light show. So really it's not a, it's not a hard surgery to have. It's, it's really quite easy. It's just a little bit weird. And for a lot of people, it's hard to get over the phobia. Yeah. That's for me. That would be, that would be for me. That's where I spend a lot of my time and energy to educate patients and just say, Hey, look, I've done this a lot. I think after looking at you in my microscope and talking to you, I think you're going to do great. Just remember that this is just strange, weird. If you can trust me with weird, you're going to you know, walk out of there and go, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I just had cataract surgery. And I'm going out to have lunch right now. So it, it takes it takes some time to uh, to sit there in front of the patient face-to-face -face and eyeball, eyeball, and just you know, kind of peer into them and say, hey, look, you're going to be fine with this. I hear what you're saying. 
I know your fears, but it's really not bad. And so many people, almost to a man or woman, walk out of there and go, that wasn't bad. I said, yes, exactly, like I told you. Yeah. yeah. I would say that I would say the reason most people, myself included, is the fear of going under. If your your eyes are so sensitive, I don't know. That's but that's it's actually very reassuring to hear that. Well, Teddy, maybe now you should go get Lasix. Go fly out and make an appointment with Doctor Bustos. I know a lot of people who have gotten when I when I got my glasses, the doctor when he did my eye exam he said. He didn't know how long, but I was basically walking around with one eye, one one arm tied behind my back. That's how <laughs> my, bad my eyes were. Like how bad my eyes were. He did this whole test, and then he he goes, "I want to have a little fun with you." And so he, you know, they do when they do the glasses, they do the different lenses to get your see which one works for you. Sure. And so he put his finger through, and he actually, when he got to the one, there was no lens on it. He touched my eye. It was it was just to show that I really couldn't see anything. He's just like and he, and he, a, it was, and he, was, he thought it was funny. I, I didn't think it was as funny as he did, but it was interesting to see how how blind I was. What is one of the most uh, interesting cases that you've seen so far? Oh wow, interesting. Um, a few years ago, I was practicing out in practicing out in Eugene, Oregon, um, and I was on call for my group and. I got a call to come to the ER one night and uh, it was man versus dog, uh, dog one. Uh, so I walked into the trauma bay and uh, there's a gentleman whose half of his face was all gnarled up. Uh, his eye, his eyelids, eyeball, his cheeks, everything around his eye was all gnarled up. And then he had this line of stitches over the other eyebrow, which I'll get to later, but uh, it, it turns out he had a, a bull mastiff you know, like 220 pound dog, you know, he, he would roll around the floor with uh, and play with. And, and this guy was not, he wasn't a wave. He was like six foot two, 230. And, and he would roll around the floor with this dog. Well, the dog uh, got a little too aggressive and bit his face off and his eyeball, uh, his eyeball was open. So he had oh. open globe injuries. His eyeball was flat. Oh, it, it's got eyelid parts everywhere. And yeah, so I spent, I spent much of the night actually, sewing his face and his eyeball back together again. And then I learned afterwards in the morning, uh, upon talking to him again, I learned that he had actually been in that very same ER a week ago for the very same thing. The dog actually bit a hole in his other eyebrow, which is why he had the stitches over there, but didn't obviously Learned didn't have lesson. nearly the trauma at this time. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite, uh, quite uh, gruesome actually. How is that, how you're on call, you get the call, you know, it's obviously a trauma case. How do they, do they, th there's got to be some element of surprise when you walk in and you're just like, <laughs> oh, oh. wait, what, wait, hold on. It, uh, yeah, yeah. Like not exactly what I th thought, not exactly what I thought. Right. You know, oh, definitely. You know, I, I've, I've gotten, uh, you know, in similar kinds of uh, presentations or patients, I've gotten uh, comments like, oh, we had a guy who has a laceration uh, from a dog bite. And I walk in and it looks like World War Three. Oh. So and sometimes they're just like and sometimes and sometimes some of the staff is, is just overly cautious and there's they're worried about his eyelids swelling up and and the, and the eyes gonna pop out, it's so much pressure here and that, and they will build it up to I think more than what I would expect it to be built up because they just aren't sure. Uh, and you know, I'd rather have someone be uh, you know overcautious than than undersell something, you know, especially with that when vision's at stake. Yeah. 
because you're in you said you're in in kentucky and eugene's and other great areas very outdoorsy any any hunting trauma things happen um you know honestly i really don't see a lot of hunting trauma uh hunters are usually pretty smart that we're in there in the goggles things like that i don't see a lot of that um i do see uh just a lot of dumb trauma period um and not even so much trauma i once had a girl in residency who she was nine or ten and i got called to the ER in the middle of the night and uh, she had a tick in her eye so i said okay uh, i went to the er and, and came by the room and found her spread out in a bed with three people all over her picking ticks all over her body off oh my god it turns out, I mean, I don't know if she was sleeping without a tent or whatever, but she was out in the woods uh, with her parents or family or whatever. And she literally probably had 500 ticks all over her and several in the eyes that I had to pull out. Oh, so this might um, be a stupid question because I don't know how this works. But when you get like, a, say that trauma, that dog bite trauma, um, say it happened and you know you got some of the neck or do you go to surgery are you with like a general surgeon and then like trauma surgeon and yourself at the same time or how does that work no that's that's not a bad question at all actually it really depends on 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 what is involved i mean generally if it's just the eye eyelid um it'll just be me uh and and sometimes if there's if the trauma is extensive enough you know i might uh, have to I might tag team with a with a trauma surgeon or a plastic uh, a plastic surgeon, uh, but sometimes they're just not available. So in that case, it was just me and no one was else available. So I you know sewed his eyeball shut, sewed up his eyelid, sewed up his face. Uh, so it was it really just depends. But you, we get, we're usually so specialized and do things at odd times and odd odd operating rooms that there's not a lot of uh, teamwork or like tag teaming as far as me and other specialties. It's usually just the eye guys and yeah. then if something else needs to happen we send them to the other people or actually usually it's we're the ones to get the patient last <laughs> yeah uh, how's yeah. your work work-life balance oh uh, balance what's that i know um, <laughs> i know right and not very good right now uh no it's it's i i usually try and keep it uh as as, as, as meaningful as possible i've got four kids and so i try to make sure i i make time for them and in my specialty you can I, I don't do a lot of uh, see a lot of trauma anymore. I do a lot of cataract surgery and glaucoma, uh, so I a lot of, a lot of office work. So my after hours emergencies and stuff are very limited. Uh, so if, for, as far as um, you know, what you're what you're looking for in choosing a specialty, I mean, you can't you can't really go wrong with this because uh, we're a very low uh, emergency, low acuity kind of specialty. Most people don't have emergencies. I can count on two hands the number of you know, particular types of emergencies I, I could see in a, in a given couple of years and they're pretty few and far between. So um, I'm usually able to leave the office by 5.30 or 6 and, you know, I'll get here at 7.30, but you know, weekends are off usually. So it, as far as uh, balance goes, it's not hard from a specialty standpoint. Uh, but, you know, if you're busy like I am, it can be tough to maintain that balance just because you're trying to do what's right for the patient and take care of everybody and do it all correctly and also take care of your family. So that's probably yeah. the, the biggest challenge I have as far as balance goes. If you could go back, are you glad you have a private practice or would you try and, uh, would have been employed by someone or a group? Oh, no, I'm glad I have private practice. Um, I, I'm definitely not an academic medicine kind of guy. Me, me and white coats and stuffiness, it just doesn't, not at all, zero. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I do like private practice. When I was I, when I graduated residency in 2007, <clears throat> pardon me, I went to uh, practice out in Oregon for six years, and I was part of a nonprofit um, multi specialty Catholic uh, medical group. And so every specialty under the sun, and we were part. We were one department of that, uh, and that was more like uh, Kaiser Permanente kind of uh, employment. Uh, and this is really my my first true private practice experience out here in Nashville. And I like it because you get to call a little more of your own shots if you want to push your your interests and your time more towards cataract surgery or LASIK surgery, or you want, you want to do more uh, refractive surgery, glaucoma. You know, you can kind of push yourself in whatever direction you really want to go to and establish your niche. You don't have to do a fellowship if you don't want, and I didn't. I went straight out of practice, but you can still kind of make your niche, you know. I think what we hear uh, commonly that deters physicians from doing private practice is being a part of the administration part of that. Administrative headaches, hiring, firing, billing, worrying, yeah, worrying about all that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it that stuff sucks. It does, but when you when you look at the other end of the of the of the seesaw, there, I mean, you've got problems being in, in hospitals, groups, or academic medicine. So it's it's a it's a plus minus, it's give and take, and what is most important to you, uh, you know, having uh, more recognition or research opportunities in academic medicine versus having more of opportunity to, to kind of practice how you want, where you want, with who you want. Yeah, the and, autonomy. And you, yeah, exactly. But then, but then you deal with the business headaches. So there's always something. Uh, for me, I'd rather uh, have the autonomy and, and deal with the business headaches. Makes sense. Um, So we're almost out of time, but one last question I want to ask you is um, what advice would you give for someone coming out of training and that's just about to start going into the workforce as a physician, you know, just different specialties? Is there anything that you wish you knew? Um, Like the physician that we interviewed yesterday said, uh, I wish I would have... looked more into finances because you get into the world of physician and there's just so much to know. Um, so if you had any advice for, um, someone ready to jump into the physician career world, um, that you wish you knew, uh, back then. Yeah. You know, I, I'd probably echo what the physician yesterday told you. It really is, um, you know, going to medical school is like drinking through a fire hose. You just, it's overwhelming. And so you, you dedicate, you know, hundred plus hours a week to learning the stuff and then just as much to doing, practicing the medicine. And there's so much to know, you could never know it all. So we're always constantly running and keeping up and trying to uh, know the latest things in our specialty. I would say, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it would be a really good idea to, you know, maybe take a basic finance class or two, have a, um, a financial, uh, personal financial uh consultant who might be able to steer you and guide you. And, you know, obviously I think um, if you can continue to live on your residency salary, even after you you graduate from residency and then just pay off debts, then that's probably a really huge thing to do. It's, it's not easily done because by the time most of us get through residency practice, we, we, uh, we, we're sick of, you know, starving ourselves and, and sacrificing, we would like a little bit of comfort. So it's hard to do. But for the ones that, that I know have done that, they're really happy they did it because now they really have the financial freedom to do what they want to do, whether they want to open private practice or work part-time in Guam or whatever. Uh, and if you're saddled with a bunch of student debt and bills and things like that, 
it becomes harder and harder to do that, especially as you get later and later in your career. So that's, a, that's probably a wise thing to do, which I did not do very well. Is, I, you know, like you see like athletes, right? There's when they, they come into all this money, they have people that try to come in and mentor them and give them advice on how to, you know, spend wisely and not, you know, go overboard. Is, is that part of when you're getting ready to finish residency again, you're, you're getting a, a you're getting paid, but are there, are there people that come in there and is that part of your training to kind of help balance your money or no? Absolutely. Does that make sense? No, you know, it makes perfect sense. It absolutely not. I mean, if you have a residency program that is progressive enough to think about that and might give a one or two hour lecture to the residents, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty good. I don't, I don't know of hardly any residencies that do that. And even in medical schools, there's a, a huge chunk of the equation that's missing from our medical school residency education. We just don't get it. So we're, we get, we get that uh, through the um, trial of fire, you know, going out. It should be, should be done better. We, we deal with, you know, we're dealing with residents usually, you know, and um, my, where I recruit are, are smaller. I was actually out in Monticello, Monticello, Kentucky two weeks ago, not too far from like three hours from Nashville, mm -hmm. but um, you know, $500,000 in Monticello, Kentucky compared to $500,000 in LA, you know, you, you don't need to really make that much. You don't big, big need, difference. yeah, you know, big different. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's actually a good way to put and, it. And, and when you, be, when you be living on 35,000 or $40,000 a year as a resident and nothing before that, you know, it's really easy to just go, okay, I can finally get a house. I can finally start having kids. I can finally, you know, uh, go to my Super Bowl game that I want to go to once a year. And those are all fine things. Uh, but it's hard to have, hard to, have delayed gratification when you've been suffering so long and you'll still continue to suffer. Medicine is a very, very difficult uh, per, uh, profession. It's just very difficult. You really have to be dedicated. You have to really want to do this because there's regulation and garbage that comes at you from left and right. And if you couldn't do it um, because you love it and uh, I, I, I would leave, if I couldn't do it. If I actually, if I had a case specialist, I would just leave. I love ophthalmology that much and medicine is that difficult to practice, I would just leave the specialty and go teach. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Bustos, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us today and letting us get to know you. Um, this was awesome. Thank you so much today. I sure appreciate the time. Cool. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Dr. Bustos. Pleasure. Have a good weekend. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.